What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the planet today. It is Friday, July 8th, 2022. I'm your host, Matt Norton, here with co-host Giselle Herrera. No Nick for today or Monday, but luckily we had Giselle scheduled to be on for those episodes anyway. So, Giselle, welcome back. Nice to be back, Matt, and excited to dive into some of these stories for today. Yeah, excited to have you back. This, yeah. is, a, this is a big one. One day soon, we'll get the three of us back on an episode. Oh, together. true. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's been too long. Yep, that's so true. All right, let's do this thing. Cover the latest in climate change, wildlife conservation, renewable energy, and environmental policy with two episodes every week coming your way Monday and Friday. And we are about to get into our quick hits. So the first one is by Carolyn Wilkie of the New York Times, who writes, like a bird on a wire that starts a wildfire. Yeah, I like the rhyme. It's very... (laughs) Very uh, new to the New York Times, I feel like. Um, Anyways, this article is about researchers finding dozens of incidents where a bird was electrocuted on a power line and then ended up sparking fires where their bodies hit the ground. One incident discussed in the article is a hawk that triggered a 40-acre fire in Montana back in 2017. This is one of 44 different bird-caused wildfires between 2014 and 2018. Most of these fires were relatively small and under 12 acres, but one 2015 wildfire caused by a raptor in Idaho burned 10,000 acres. The researchers found that those types of fires are more common in areas with fewer trees because birds are less likely to perch on power lines if trees are available. The author notes that a bird can rest on one wire with no problem, but touching two wires simultaneously or touching one wire and a piece of grounded equipment like a transformer, can cause some major damage. When putting these fires on a map based on ecoregions, the Mediterranean California region had the greatest number of bird fires, despite it being the smallest area. And I'm sure we can all, you know, think about all of those really intense wildfires out in that part of the country. Yeah, and the Mediterranean California region is basically the entire western half of the state. So mm-hmm. it, it checks out. You know, this is happening in areas where you're hearing about a lot of wildfires Mm -hmm. to begin with. For sure. Some estimates predict that roughly 10 million birds may die by electrocution each year in the United States alone. Even more die from collisions with electrical infrastructure on top of that. So even if electrocutions causing wildfires are rare, overall electrocutions are not. Yeah, so, you know, we're, we're used to hearing stories of wildfire coming from lightning or irresponsible humans and, you know, the occasional prescribed burn that gets out of hand. But now we can add this onto a list of potential ways to start a wildfire. And the main issue for me, or I guess issues here, are that, number one, power lines are everywhere. Number two, drought conditions are worsening. So even if this isn't a common issue now, it's one that we should definitely be aware of and hopefully make the proper changes that are required before it starts to become more common on dry, arid land. 
for sure. And the article did get into how things can be changed to lower the risk of wildfires caused by birds. Uh, one way was for utility companies to cover wires on the poles with plastic insulators to keep the birds from electrocuting themselves. Another one is what some conservationists have also tried, which is placing nest boxes atop utility poles to keep birds from nesting near metal wires or any other equipment. So Taylor Barnes of EDM International kind of sums this entire thing up by saying, the cost of mitigation is far less than the potential consequence of these fires, whether loss of human life, loss of wildlife habitat, or damage to electrical infrastructure. So there's kind of a multi-pronged approach here as to why this is important and why it's something that we need to be aware of. And, you know, the, the numbers you pointed out, this only happened, what was it, 40-something times over a five-year period. It's not like this is happening every day. Mm -hmm. But with conditions that are constantly getting worse mm -hmm. for those factors that create wildfires, something like this in 2032, for example, it might happen way more often because sure. arid land is going to be more popular. We're going to have more regions that are prone to wildfire. Mm -hmm. And, you know, with more birds potentially getting electrocuted, we're going to see more wildfires from this. So I'm, I'm glad to hear that some conservationists and some local utilities are starting to take those steps. And, uh, yeah, hopefully now that this has been brought to light in this New York Times article, it's something that moving forward we deal with less and less. Yeah, and it's honestly, it seems like a relatively low-cost solution to, you know, minimizing some of these wildfires that really ravage out west and, you know, also, the birds don't get electrocuted, so it's kind yeah. of a win-win in that scenario. But, um, yeah, I, I honestly, before, you know, prepping for this, for this podcast, I didn't know that this was even, like, a something that could have caused so many wildfires. Is the fact that birds were electrocuted and, you know, all these series of events. So it's definitely eye-opening, but good to see, like you said, Matt, that utility companies and, and conservationists are working together to find a solution. Yeah. The next one is titled, MIT proposes Brazil-sized fleet of space bubbles to cool the earth by Freethink's Kristen Hauser. Okay, so uh, let me just start off with the elephant in the room. This one is definitely a little out there, and <laughs> the article even admits that. Um, but as longtime listeners of the show slash friends of mine know, I'm a huge sci-fi nerd. I love this sort of stuff. So um, yeah, this idea here is basically to create space bubbles that will reflect sunlight away from our planet. Um, this is absolutely not meant to go against the scientific consensus of lowering our carbon emissions. So don't think that that's the purpose of this article. This is basically saying that, look, even with lowering emissions and transitioning away from fossil fuels and decreasing plastic pollution and protecting our oceans and protecting our forests, this is something else that maybe we can add into that mix and hopefully help mitigate climate change. Since the world seems to be hanging on to fossil fuels longer than we should be, some researchers have started to look into a plan B, and they have come to solar geoengineering as that plan B. That term, solar geoengineering, can be defined as cooling the Earth by reflecting solar radiation away from it. And the most common approach to that is through reflective aerosol particles in the atmosphere. So, you know, to kind of put this into layman's terms, you would basically just shoot some aerosol gas into the atmosphere 
and that gas would reflect sunlight away from the earth so less sunlight then gets to the earth and for that reason less heat gets trapped in our atmosphere as a result of it the downside in just shooting gas bubbles up into the atmosphere is there is no clear-cut way to recapture those aerosols if there's you know any unforeseen side effects or if it just doesn't work at all so people have started to look into a plan b for that plan b mm-hmm. yeah like like you said there's nothing there's no replacement to the original like main solution of just using more renewables stopping the, the use of fossil fuels just trying mm-hmm. to get this under control for sure and researchers at mit have proposed that we take this solar engineering plan b plan b to space and have been looking into what would happen if a brazil-sized shield made of potentially these silicone bubbles was created around the earth to eventually reflect sunlight very wild to you know say that sentence out loud so it's it's, it's star wars yeah yeah <laughs> and that's all this is i like that the meter is brazil sized it's like yeah. Oh, okay, got it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, not to not to totally derail this conversation, but Nick and I were talking about this a couple weeks ago. Like, we as Americans, we don't do well with sizes. Like, you need to no. describe it as yeah. a football field, yes, or something where I can visualize it. Non-metric, say, like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, don't don't even get me started. Forget I, it. A system <laughs> no. that's base ten and totally makes more sense than twelve inches. Better be feet, miles, no <laughs> football fields. Like, yeah, none of this metric, but Brazil size. Okay, Brazil size shield. Yeah, makes sense. And this shield would be placed at Lagrangian point one, which is a point in space where the gravitational pulls of the Earth and the sun are equal. So the shield would stay there indefinitely. Yeah, so we're basically talking about building something in space. So we're not shooting those gas bubbles up into space. We're talking about something that is already constructed in space and then placed at this point where the pull towards the Earth is equal to the pull towards the sun. So it just sits there. And that's why I said, you know, this is exciting, but this is a little science fiction-y to me because this seems like, look, it sounds possible, but I'm not going to call it plausible. There's a lot of factors that could go into this that could make it not work. Yep. Um, But, you know, let's, let's humor it. So because these bubbles would be almost a million miles away from Earth, the MIT team says this approach to solar geoengineering would not be as risky as you know, methods that directly involve Earth's atmosphere, like shooting those aerosols, like we mentioned earlier. This would also be fully reversible, according to the research team at MIT. And they said that if things went wrong, we could just pop the bubbles and we would actually be able to reduce space debris through this method. So I don't know. I mean, like, I don't know how possible this is. I'm not going to sit here and say that this is going to be in the mix in the next five years. But... The fact that people are looking into it, that's exciting. And the fact that, you know, this is just one of the studies that got published. You got to think there's others that are out there where people are saying, hey, we need to reduce our carbon emissions. Mm -hmm. And we aren't doing that as fast as we should be. So rather than try to just sit here and talk on a podcast and tell people who already care about the environment that, hey, governments need to do this, let's just act on it. And you know what? Let's, Let's give us this added layer of, Instead of reducing by 2030, if this shield can give us until 2035, maybe we have a better outlook. And I think that's kind of the point of creating this shield, or at the very least, just researching it. Mm-hmm. And while this is such a like unique idea, and you know the logic stands, and uh, you know it could be 
applied like relatively soon. Yeah, unclear about the timeline. Um, it's also nice to see that they have like thought about, oh, what if things went wrong? Yeah. I feel like that's kind of rare in a lot of uh, studies that, you know, start being applied by humans. Yeah. So that's that's also pretty refreshing. Yeah, it's like human arrogance almost to a point where like we never really think of, oh, well, what if this doesn't work? Because mm -hmm. when you come up, I, I don't know any of these research, but researchers, but if you go to MIT, you're probably brilliant. And if you're studying solar geoengineering at MIT, yeah. you are probably absolutely brilliant. So for it, it would be very easy for someone like that to be like, here's how this would work. Here's why it would work. Let's research it. So, so to say, you know, hey, if this doesn't work, here's what we do. That was just, like you said, very refreshing. Sure. Yep. I could tell you if I was that smart, there would be no plan B because you would just. <laughs> it's happening. Would, yeah. I'd be like, this is what we're doing. This is how it goes. It's working. <laughs> End of story. <laughs> All right. Uh, we are about to take a quick break. And when we get back, we got two more quick hits for you. Today's episode of The Planet Today is brought to you by Vala Alta. Vala Alta's Everyday Handkerchief is a high-performance daily-use handkerchief designed to help minimize your impact. Made in the United States from sustainably sourced Irish linen, capturing the material's historic craftsmanship and natural antimicrobial properties, handkerchiefs perfectly balance softness with durability and absorbency with rapid drying. Ideal for functional use in all settings from the outdoors to routine encounters, their small and lightweight design makes one a must-carry for wherever life takes you. Build your own bundles from limited edition colors at valalta.co and save 15% with code TPT at checkout. That's V-A-L-A-A-L-T-A dot co and code TPT. planet today folks next up a shark superhighway is being protected by fishermen by neil lewis at cnn so this bit of news is set in the mesoamerican reef which spans more than 600 miles from mexico to honduras not only is the mesoamerican reef the second largest barrier reef in the world but it's home to coral and mangrove forests and is used by a ton of marine species like sharks turtles and rays to navigate north and south along that superhighway. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, though, this corridor can be a site for overfishing, commercial development, and the illegal practice of finning. So finning is most common with sharks and rays. And if you've heard of finning, you've probably heard of that. You know, there was a big ban on shark finning in certain countries a couple of years ago, I, I, somewhere out in Asian Pacific. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I remember, you know, shark fin soup was something that was considered a bit of a delicacy. And should have prepped on this, but I remember one country banned shark finning for that reason. This has continued a decline in shark and ray populations in many countries, which is why you're starting to see a lot more governments and conservation groups stepping in. 
So these species were already in a tough spot with more than a third of sharks and rays threatened with extinction worldwide. So definitely good to see that, you know, there's another corridor where sharks, rays, other species are super popular. And now it's getting some more protections. For sure. And what's also really important to note, too, is that a lot of these species are endangered. They're they're threatened Mm -hmm. already. So the fact that finning is part of that reason, it's it's definitely important to keep in mind. And uh, the there's this nonprofit organization called Mar Alliance, which is focused on protecting sharks and rays throughout the Americas, has the goal to reverse that decline that we were talking about. And they do it in a really interesting way. So by monitoring threatened marine life in a particular region, uh, Mar Alliance can better understand these populations, which then helps inform not only conservation, but political action. Hmm. And instead of shutting out the local fishing community, Mar Alliance does something pretty unique and reaches out for the help of this fishing community, depending on where they're doing the research, since you know they know these areas so well. It ends up being that Mar Alliance employs up to 60 fishers across its range, its research range, and trains them to collect data and tag and release fish. Not only does this provide an alternative income to fishing communities, the fact that they can be involved in this research, mm-hmm. um, it also allows them to be less dependent on natural resources that, you know, ebb and flow. Uh, and it also highlights the benefits of a healthy ocean ecosystem and how to fish sustainably. So a lot of positives in this pretty unique partnership. Yeah, that, that's awesome. And I love, you know, the, the reliance on the local community, because like you said, they're going to know this area way, way better. And I have a friend, James, who we interviewed a couple months ago now in May uh, from Mission Clean Water. He was talking about what his organization does differently is that they rely on the local community and get them involved. And they're seeing a lot more sustained success over the years compared to just NGOs that go in, do the work and then just leave. Mm-hmm because you have to address the, the root of these issues. Mm-hmm. And in this case, if overfishing in an area is going to be the root issue, addressing that with the community and then getting them involved in something that they should be proud of, you know, yeah. getting them involved in, in getting these populations back up, I think that's going to lead to a lot more sustained success long term yep. for Mar Alliance. Yeah, exactly. So let's talk about sharks for a second. They kind of get a bad rap because, well, Shark Week and Jaws – and you know there's a lot of there's a lot of things that go on and people are afraid <laughs> of sharks like you don't hear about sharks on the day to day you hear about shark attacks on cape cod where it's rare or out in new jersey or down in south africa like you you hear about the attacks and on shark week you look at the the shows that do the best numbers are the ones about shark attacks even though 23 out of the 24 hours of programming they have is about shark conservation mm-hmm people love you know that side of it it's almost like the the true crime genre of conservation that's so true so sharks are important like they're they're very important to ocean ecosystems because they are the apex predators they help keep other populations in check and they help maintain that balance so we talk a lot about how you know the apex species in an an ecosystem is the easiest to protect and sometimes we'll try to highlight how the lower end of that food chain like your algae is doesn't always get the shine but 
look in this case like sharks are getting the shine they deserve because they're important they're cool they're awesome so by protecting them this is a win-win for scientists and for fishers and for the sharks absolutely and Going back to uh, Mar Alliance, this uh, NGO that is working really thoroughly and thinking about how do we protect these these organisms long term, their founder, Rachel Graham, has hope for shark and ray populations. She says the primary threat to sharks is unquestionably overfishing, like you were saying, Matt, and Mm -hmm. reforming the industry populations can bounce back. So that's good news. Just in 2020, so relatively recently, Belize outlawed the use of gill nets, which are these large panels of netting that hang in the water, just trying to like massively trap. overfish, yeah, and trap a lot of um, marine life in those nets. Mm-hmm. And um, as you can imagine, they're known for like tangling up large marine animals like sharks and rays. So, so because of this ban, it's already noticeable in areas that were really hit hard by overfishing the the impact that removing these gill nets has on you know ocean ecosystems Mm -hmm. and on top of that good news between 2019 and 2021 mar alliance recorded a tenfold increase in shark populations which is wild yeah it's clear that these sorts of regulations need to be applied along this whole super highway for a long-lasting impact mar alliance hopes that through education and providing an economic alternative for fishing communities and involving them in this process, both scientists and communities can help protect these threatened marine species, especially those that are traveling along the Mesoamerican reef. Yeah, I'll be I'll be very interested to see, you know, the the outcome of this. We've talked about how there's this tenfold increase in the population. So clearly this is working, but how are the countries that are along this superhighway, this corridor, going to respond to all this? Because at the end of the day, like people need to put food on their tables. Mm-hmm. And it's it's really hard to sometimes go in and say, this needs to get done for this environmental reason because, frankly, some people aren't going to care because they're worried about how do I feed my kids. For sure. Um, in this case, it's great that Mar Alliance is you know providing an economic impact to these fishing communities and saying like hey here's another way you can make money and help us out essentially so yeah i'm I'm curious you know what's gonna come out of this and definitely something that we're gonna have to be on the lookout for absolutely all right and our last quick hit of the week is from the conversation where beth daly writes feeding insects to cattle could make meat and milk production more sustainable a lot of people and a lot of different cultures enjoy eating beef cheese yogurt if you're like me, ice cream, or, you know, just drinking milk. With the population of the world continuing to grow, global food demand is also following that. So current projections say that global food demand will increase by between 59 and 98% above the current levels, especially, you know, demand for high-quality proteins such as meat and dairy. So Daily writes, cattle are natural upcyclers. Their specialized digestive system allows them to convert low-quality sources of nutrients that humans cannot digest, like grass and hay, into high-quality protein foods like meat and milk that meet human nutritional requirements. Many farmers also feed soybean meal to their cows, which is more expensive, requires more farmland, and is a leading contributor to deforestation in the Amazon. 
So one of the ways to lower emissions in cattle farming is to change their food. And a really easy way to think about this is how certain foods make humans more gassy. The same thing happens to cows. And this is one of the reasons why the insect farming industry is on the rise globally. We've heard this in conversation for the past 10 or 15 years or so. And that's really cool to see it be a potential solution to how we care for uh, cattle that eventually becomes our meat. Yeah. So producers are growing insects to feed animals with that are this high source of protein because Mm -hmm. a lot of different reasons. They grow quickly. They have a lower environmental footprint than feed crops, like Matt, you were saying before. And of course probably most importantly, they're high in protein. One of the edible insects that's getting a lot of attention is the black soldier fly, which is 45% protein and 35% fat as a larva. And the article points out that most U.S. adults are not willing to eat the larva themselves, shocker, but are more willing to eat meat from animals that were fed these larvae. And one quick plug, a lot of communities have been eating insects as their main sources of protein. We should definitely be investing in that. Uh, I'm going to step off that soapbox. (laughs) If Nick was here, I would have him do the the TPT soapbox jingle. Of course I remember that. (laughs) Dang. So research has already found that black soldier fly larvae can be fed to chickens, pigs, and fish as a sustainable substitute for conventional feed. There hasn't been much research yet into whether they can or cannot be fed to cattle successfully. Um, This article suggests that cow's specialized digestive system might allow them to use the larvae more efficiently than other livestock. So the article discusses that research is ongoing and results look pretty promising so far from a production and cost perspective. Researchers found that the larvae would be priced slightly higher than current protein sources normally fed to cattle, including soybean meal. So that's the slight Mm -hmm. downside. But the higher price reflects the superior nutritional profile of black soldier fly larvae. However, it is not yet known if the insect farming industry can grow this insect at this price point. Or, you know, if they can, would cattle producers even pay for this insect at this Mm -hmm. price point? So there's a lot of research that has to go into this, but... You know, as of right now, it's looking like it's a little bit more expensive, but that's because it's going to be better for you. So, you know, it's a it's a give and take Mm -hmm. there. The global market for edible insects is growing quickly and advocates contend that using insects as ingredients can make humans and animal food more sustainable. At the end of the day, we aren't going to get everyone to avoid carbon intensive Mm -hmm. foods. And that's you know, that, that is what it is. I think that encouraging those who can limit these foods to do so is great and for those who can't limit it and for those who who don't want to cut out entirely but can cut a little bit of steak out of their diet for example making it more sustainable for everyone there's no harm in that like that's just a great call and another great positive is the global impact that this switch can have in a lot of different areas so it seems like yeah you know really encouraging like you said Giselle, would you eat a black soldier fly larva or meat from an animal that has eaten it? So I might be um, some the wrong person. Yeah, because I I just eat fish. And um, so I'd be curious just to see like a fish just like pop up to the surface and and eat one. In that case, for sure, I'd I'd eat it. I would also try one. I'm not I'm not against it. 
you know? Yeah, I'm kind of the same boat. I don't I don't eat beef, so this is kind of uh, some <laughs> can't can't really throw this question right. back at me either. Put but no, I I would eat the yeah. larva. I don't care. Like I'll try anything yes. twice. I've eaten crickets. I've eaten grasshoppers. I've eaten ants. Put so. some tahini on that, and I think anything tastes good. You know, <laughs> like maybe a little hot sauce. Yeah, I mean, there's plenty of of cultures where people eat grubs. Mm-hmm. Like it, it is what it is. It's a high source of fat. It's a high source of protein. Who am I to tell? Who am I to yuck someone else's yum? So oh, I would try excellent. it. I'll try anything. Yep, right there with you. <laughs> All right, that'll do it for today's episode of TPT. On Monday, Giselle and I are going to be back for some bonus quick hits. There were a lot of things that happened over the past week and a half, so we wanted to touch on a little bit of everything. Yeah, this was a this was a tough week to write for because normally we're just cutting like one or two things. Today there was like ten <laughs> things that we could have yeah. talked about, so we figured, you know, let's mm-hmm. break them up. Until then, please go give the show a five star rating and review wherever you can. Follow our socials at Planet Today Pod. Send us an email at planettodaypod at gmail.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at Matt Norton. Nick Janusa produces our show and makes all of the music you hear throughout. Go check out his stuff at soundcloud.com slash Cape, and that's B-U-D-L-Y-N-C-A-P-E. Our co-host extraordinaire Giselle Herrera helped write this episode. Giselle, where can people keep up with you? Feel free to follow me on Twitter at Giselle A. Herrera, G-I-S-E-L-L-E-A-H-E-R-R-E-R-A. I feel like Nick spelling out the <laughs> the the plug the yeah <laughs> and for those that heard my first episode on the podcast you can follow me on linkedin too yeah don't follow me on linkedin i don't use it <laughs> all right our logo is made by kaylee veets have a great weekend everyone and we will catch you right here on monday see y'all